When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Why am I with Seabus Super? Because I'm a builder and they take care of me. Well, I had an accident on the work site and they helped me out, no worries. Yeah, they helped me out real fast. Mate, they just get me. Because they are for all of us. Seabus, for all of us. To consider if Seabus is right for you, visit seabussuper.com.au for a copy of the PDS. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. This is the Final Word Cricket Podcast with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. I'm the first one of those on the show today. We're having a look at South Africa where the entire board of Cricket South Africa have all resigned. All 10 members have quit um, after they themselves recommended that they should quit in some instances. It's all very confusing. We've got Lungani Zama on the show who's one of the best journalists in South Africa on cricket. So that will be the second part of the show with a good 20 minutes with Lungani explaining all of the stuff that's going on over that side of the world. At the very end of the show will be happy birthday Sachin so if you're hanging out to find out who Sachin's been chatting to in the last couple of weeks that's where you need to go. Before then we've got India coming to Australia, we've got England going to South Africa, England also maybe going to India and Sri Lanka and Pakistan. They're going to be very busy. We've got some reworking of the Test Championship. We've got a glimpse of the WPBL, the IPL, the Sheffield Shield. We've got Jeffrey Boycott being a massive knob. Uh, everything just normal in cricket, as you would <laughs> expect. The, the cricketing weeks go on. Uh, we have things getting a little bit better in Melbourne on the COVID front. Uh, and first of all, most importantly of all, before anything else, from Adam Collins, I need to get a Winifred update <laughs> on uh, what what is going on with all things of the world of that small, shouty person. Yeah, I like that Winnie. Hi, Jeff. I like that Winnie uh, gets presidents here before we uh, go into all the other uh, news of the week, and there's a lot of it. She's good. Uh, yeah, Melbourne, great news uh, that Melbourne uh, is, is going to be out of um, their lockdown uh, soon, and that's been announced by the government. But we're sort of on the other way, obviously, in, in the UK and in London. We're in Tier 2. I'm you know, I'm not saying I'm sure we'll be Tier 3 soon, but certainly it feels as though it'll get worse before it gets better over here, which does complicate matters somewhat with a with an eight-month-old or a nine-month-old. She's halfway between those two marks at the moment. She's good. She's on the move. She's, she's, uh, she's 28 until she's 29. Yes. That's, that's right. Works. That's right. She's twenty eight till she's twenty nine. Uh, no, she uh, she's she's. Uh, I wouldn't say crawling. She sort of gets into a downward dog of sorts and and shoves right. herself along the, the floor. Uh, she's very loud. <laughs> she's very snotty. We're passing the cold. You can probably tell in my voice that I'm not firing on all cylinders today. But that's a that's a result of her having picked up not COVID, but something I don't know where. I think she was in a in a musical thing last week that they've still been running, where they all suck on the same toys, all the babies, and make each other sick. And as a result. The parents get sick as well. So, but no, she's great. Uh, she's um, 
enthusiastic and smiley and uh, says mama and dada and all the rest. And you've seen a little bit of that, Jeff, through Zoom last week, which is really nice. Yeah, so, she, yeah. she was, she was um, definitely her most interactive at that point. She knew there was somebody in the screen and, yeah. you know, was was maintaining pretty strong eye contact. So I, I backed down first. <laughs> yeah, that's right. No, it's great. I mean, and even if, like, obviously it's complicated getting to Australia for the summer. We've... Uh, We've booked flights on three occasions. The first two lots have been cancelled. We've now booked a third lot. You know, so we're going to be heading into hotel quarantine in Brisbane for a fortnight at the start of December. None of this is easy, but the fact that we'll have had uh, Winnie almost exclusively in the house with us over the next month or so might set us up to be sitting in a hotel room. Hopefully a hotel room that's as nice as the one you were in, Jeff, and not the travel lodge. I hope we pick out the right ball from the draft. <laughs> I hope you get one with a balcony. <laughs> Being able to go outside at some point is pretty useful. That's what people in Melbourne are going to be able to do a bit more of, get outside. They've had a couple of days of zero cases. They've done a lot of testing around places where there were cases or the, or the worry of cases and things are looking tentatively pretty good so far, which means in cricket terms, it's a lot more likely the Boxing Day test will be able to go ahead at the MCG and might be able to have some crowds. You know, I imagine people will be spaced out, um, but at the MCG, that's a bit easier than elsewhere. You can still get a reasonable crowd in, but I, I suppose it's less the seating that's at issue than the shared facilities and, you know, toilets and uh, food and drink and all the rest of it where contagion would be more of a risk. But there's, it's, it at least looks a lot more optimistic than it did a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, certainly that was the, the commentary from the Premier, uh, which I read this morning, saying that I don't know how big the crowd will be, but given the progress that's been made in the last month if you apply that for two more months I guess we're two months away from Boxing Day test at the moment as we record they're confident that they'll be in a good position by then the tour overall there's a lot that's been going on really in the last five or six days since we recorded properly so India will come to Australia and will come to New South Wales and, and the ACT first, but they're still in these meetings. I mean, Jeff, you mentioned last week there were six weeks of meetings between Cricket Australia and Queensland Health. Uh, at the moment, uh, according to reports in the City Morning Herald this evening, uh, these meetings are continuing with various different officials to make sure that the BCCI and the New South Wales government and Cricket Australia are all on the same page around what medical boxes will need to be ticked. And, and again, whether family will be permitted to come with them. Sir Afghan Ghuli was talking to that newspaper yesterday and I don't think it's according to him going to be a deal breaker if families can't be in the bubble uh, or the bubbles uh, with them but still it, it is annoying I suppose for all of the different parties who just want to see the schedule locked away 100% dealt with so that there's going to be no sort of last minute twist in this story. Yeah and, and that's the thing I mean you You've never probably had a an Australian summer where it's been so late in, in terms of changing things around. You know, a couple of tests were changed in in 2014 after Phil Hughes' death, but for the most part, you certainly wouldn't have the whole schedule still being TBC like this. We know what it's supposed to be, but there is always that chance that things could change. Apparently, some of the the Indian players had the idea that once they were through quarantine, then everything was sweet and, and you could, you know, wander around and live an unfettered life. But that won't be the case because they'll still need to be in some form of hub in case anybody does pick, pick up something, you know, or, or to minimise that chance so that they're not, you know, at the kebab shop getting in a fight at three in the morning, a la the, the AFL. So... Yeah, there's still there's still the chance for somebody to throw a spanner in the works pretty last minute, and we're, we're waiting for for that chance to recede. But India have put the squads out; they've got the test 
squad, the T20 squad, um, a few interesting bits and pieces there. We, I guess looking at that test squad versus what happened when they last came, Ishant Sharma can't be there because he's got an injury. So, and Bhuvneshwar Kumar is not. Uh, I didn't see mentioned in any dispatches. I don't know if he's not been picked or if he's injured as well. But mm, yeah, um, th- th- so they've got uh, out of the bowlers who basically won them the series last time. They've got Umesh Yadav and Mohammad Shami and Jasper Bumrah, but they don't have the other two who made them such an imposing fast bowling outfit last time they came. Yeah, Mohammad Siraj, who, who came to Australia two years ago, played a one-day international at Adelaide, didn't get, didn't go particularly well, but um, he's been doing well in the IPL, and they've had him earmarked for a long time as a test bowler, so he'll get his opportunity. Uh, Kale Rahul's in the squad, Kuldeep Yadav, uh, Mohammad Siraj, as I mentioned before, gets the call-up. I think that Shubman Gill, uh, the youngster who so much has been said about uh, over the last couple of years, of course, in the IPL at the moment, uh, there'll be a lot of attention on whether he can force his way into the side. Good to see Jinka Rahane retaining his spot as vice-captain. You kind of forget that Rahane and, and Pajara have really um, the longer their careers last, the more they've become really test specialists in the in the India lineup. It's only three or four years ago that Rahane was their most productive one-day player alongside Kohli, but he's not in that squad this time around. Yumesh Yadav's also still there as a seamer, Jeff. He, he was perhaps the you go back a couple of tours, the, the top dog for the Indian seam attack. It shows how they've matured and grown um, as a group of bowlers that he's probably now third or fourth or fifth in that pecking order. But still, they're formidable. They're the, the best team in the world, obviously, by any measure. Australia lost to them two years ago, and it's going to be um, one of the last series played in the World Test Championship before they have to make a decision on how they square the circle on that, given all the series won't be played. And it's every chance that no matter what happens in this series, it'll be Australia and India playing again at Lord's in June to play off for that trophy. Well, you know who else is going to be in that squad as a test specialist who's not currently playing in the IPL? Who might that be? Anuma Vahari. <laughs> Ain't I did no see that. passing craze. <laughs> it means no worries for the rest of your days. Anuma Vahari. Yeah, he'll be over as well. Uh, yeah, the, the test championship thing, this is interesting. So they're, they're looking at a few different ways to try to make this work given that basically half of the games that were supposed to be played have not been played um, mm. and tours haven't been able to go ahead. You're more, more across this than me, but it's a, there's a kind of pro rata arrangement that they're looking at where it sort of says what percentage of the games that you've played have you won I mean does that is that legit does that check out yeah, it reminded me of, uh, well, Jeff, you know, I've been doing a, a lot of work on the AFL season of 1991 in a separate project recently, and that was the first year they had match ratio, which was kind of the percentage of games you won, because they brought a buy uh, in that year when Adelaide joined the competition. Well, it's effectively the same thing. Uh, and by that, I mean, they will hypothecate your points based on the percentage of points you'd acquired through the test you'd played so far. So let's say you get through four of your six series, uh, they'll work out how many points you, you picked up in those four series and to simply apply it in percentage terms in Series 5 and Series 6. And that's okay for, for some countries who've got through most of their roster. But if you're Bangladesh and you've played three of your six series out of the, the six that are meant to play and only one of them's been at home, I mean, it, 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 again, it, it, it's, it's fraught, isn't it? I appreciate there's no easy answer. But when we talked to Ali Martin on the show two weeks ago or three weeks ago, we, we heard from Tom Harrison, the ECB top dog. They want to play this final. The ICC are determined to play this final at Lord's. Uh, hooker by crook uh, next June and if they need to find a a fix this time around just to get it over the line they'll do so whereas I think that before that commentary we thought that it might be they'd 
push it back 12 months, uh, play it in a different location. Like they'd find a fix that wasn't as crude as this, but here we are. And evidently they need to sign off on this uh, before December this year. So that's the job of the cricket committee between now and then. Could you also just say who cares? Like if you're going to play it anyway, it it doesn't matter. You know, if, if they choose not to have it, then it doesn't happen. And so why not just choose to have it? Why not just have a, you know, call it, whatever call it the final if it's not really fair it's not fair but the alternative is that nobody plays in it and there isn't one if it's just a matter of putting on a random test match for the sake of putting one on you know why not just put it on why not just have it and then try to get things settled as far as the you know the fairer sort of way of going about it for the next one whenever that is well, yeah, I, th- I think that the broader challenge around a WTC is the settings they'll uh, have in iteration three. So they've set out the playing conditions for the first and second cycle. Uh, we know how it's going to run through yeah. to 2023 based on what they announced in 2018. So, you know, we've had discussions on this show about four-day test cricket where that may fit in, where a minimum of three test series as opposed to two might be part of a, a solution in conjunction with four-day test cricket. Not all the time, but if you need it, if, if, if that's what it takes to get, say, Bangladesh and New Zealand to play one extra test match well kind of so be years all of these discussions are on hold at the moment but Mm -hmm. I wonder whether given there'll need to be this discussion uh, around uh, this championship final whether it might prompt a a few other um, bits and pieces to be thrown up in that as well I mean even take the front foot no ball discussion that we've been having uh, for years they that was a a call that they made outside of the parameters of the WTC it just became convention that boards would now pay for it well okay sort of uh, uh, driving at your point there Jeff the the boards can do whatever they want the ICC is simply an aggregation of the, the the senior member board so they can they have the provision to change whatever they want they're not being overseen by some broader legislative process well i'd also kind of think who cares about the test championship at the moment because it was brought in like it's one of those things where it's debatable whether it's even necessary they bring it in as a way of saying oh there should be more context around why you play Mm. test matches and you know something to build towards or whatever at the moment any time a country plays against another country, it's a triumph of will and planning and all the rest of it. Mm -hmm. It it doesn't seem like you need extra context around test cricket at the moment. If you're going to play a test series, it's a big deal. People will be interested. People will be excited. You know, whether it's played for test championship points is is kind of moot. It's like, why be focused on that when really that just seems to be creating an extra hassle, which is, okay, well, we now need to organise to put on this final and work out how it's going to be done and all the rest of it, rather than putting the effort into having a series. You know, you say you have Australia and India go to England to play a test match. Well, wouldn't it be better to have those teams go to England to play a test series, you know, (laughs) whether against each other or against England or whoever else? Well, India will be in England next year, which which is also part of this. I mean, whether England can host test cricket next year to begin with, look, let's hope so. But the situation over here, mm. we're, we're talking almost in post-COVID terms and whether that's appropriate for a competition which is meant to conclude, uh, I think it's the third week of June next year. A long way to go uh, between now and then. But Osman Samuyudin has, has this piece in Crick Info uh, during the week. So if you want to follow that particular thread I'd suggest uh, uh, following his Twitter feed because he seems to have his ear pretty close to the ground when it comes to all matters ICC. 
As far as England goes, the England men's players have agreed a 15% pay cut to help with the ECB's shortfall. They're going to South Africa. They've confirmed that their white ball tour there will go ahead, T20s and one-day games, even though Cricket South Africa is an absolute schmozzle at the moment. Cricket South Africa managed to get government sign-off to allow the England squad to come in. So that'll be based in Cape Town at the end of November. Also talking about actually going to India and not necessarily just playing India elsewhere, but playing India in India. And there's this goodwill tour they're talking about in Pakistan, a T20 tour, but that's also going to clash with a test tour of Sri Lanka, which may not go ahead, but which will only go ahead if the Sri Lankan government decide to let the England team in, which isn't a lay down misere at this point. So there's... It's a pretty hectic few months coming up for England who may have three teams in circulation at some point. Yeah, and it's a very reasonable point that the countries went out of their way to make sure the English summer happened. So the England men's team especially have a responsibility to reciprocate. Totally appreciate that. So uh, Pakistan, in terms of their request to have England over for three T20 internationals in January, it doesn't feel like it's an ambit one. It feels like it's quite relevant to the cricket that was played in the northern summer. But... Of course, there's a complication. There's always a complication. And it's that Sri Lankan test series. And uh, the ECB have briefed out that they're not going to jeopardise a test series in the WTC. Remember, it's a test series that's being rescheduled because it was the first one cancelled due to COVID back in February. They're not going to send a a weakened squad to that in order to play a full-strength team in, in Pakistan. Now, it's not without precedent that a white ball team would be playing one place and a red ball in the other. We saw that when... Ireland toured England earlier this year. Of course, Australia have done it a couple of years ago when Sri Lanka were out playing T20 internationals while the test team were in India. But Lawrence Booth has a piece uh, in the Daily Mail a couple of days ago, I think it was, where the ECB are trying to manage expectations on what this might be. And it's no certainty that it will be the England team going over to play internationals on, on that basis because given the bubble situation, it may very well be that, say... 30 cricketers might be in Sri Lanka. I don't know. How many will they send? These Mm. bubbles have been a lot bigger, these squads. It may mean that to get a team to Pakistan, you're taking something that looks a lot different to the national side and whether they'd be willing to, I suppose, make those sacrifices. So a bit to run there. And there's also the issue that quite a few prominent T20 players from England have signed Big Bash deals before any of these tours have gone ahead. Now, I guess the ECB would be within its rights to pull the no objection certificates and and not let them play in the big bash but that would probably go down pretty badly given those deals are already in place and, and this is something that would be coming in later so you know there's politics there as well yeah, and, and they want their white ball players in the Big Bash. They've been very open about that. They're applying a, a similar approach to what they did with the IPL some years ago. That the more that uh, these England white ball, not specialists, but someone like David Milan, for example, if he gets a full season in the, in the Big Bash League, they see that as a, a major positive. And of course, he signed a contract. Mm. Johnny Bairstow's coming down too. Players like that, they're all in favour of them, them coming over. Now, if that gets completely wiped out because they have to quarantine in Pakistan um, for a three-game series, yeah, it, it's, it's going to take some delicate diplomacy, I think, from uh, the ECB to make all of these bits work through January. Interesting piece in The Guardian overnight, Jeff. I'm not sure if you've had a chance to catch up with this, but Johnny Liu, for his column this week in The Guardian, wrote that 
England should be applying pressure on the BCCI and the IPL to permit uh, Pakistani players to play in that competition. It's a really interesting talking point, but one that we don't talk too much about, that, you know, it's the premier T20 uh, comp in the world, domestic T20 comp in the world, and yet um, there's only ever been one Pakistani player in it, as a Mahmood, and he was doing that on the basis that he was a, an English passport holder at the time, all the way back in, I think, 2008, the first season. So, yes, the, the politics of India and Pakistan uh, back then uh, meant that it was obviously a, a very challenging time between those two countries after the, the Mumbai attacks and so on. But all these years later, in 2020, uh, the case that, that Jonathan is making is that the ECB should apply pressure at ICC level on their, their colleagues from the BCCI to permit Pakistani players to, to come into the IPL in future seasons, especially given uh, the IPL this year is being played in the UAE, which has been Pakistan's quasi-home ground for the last 10 years. It is one of the peculiarities of, of international cricket that it's just become accepted that Pakistani players don't get drafted and there's no particular rule for it it's just that all of the owners of all the franchises have decided they'd like to avoid the possible trouble or possible intervention from government if if they draft Pakistani players which is you know a pretty clear breach of any sort of discrimination legislation or less formal conventions I suppose. Well, this is, this is the point that, that, that Johnny was making is that absolute power is when you don't even need to exert that power it's just implicit it's like why would you bother going up against the man on this particular matter why would you want to run the gauntlet of pissing anyone off that's the true sign of the bcci stranglehold that they have uh, that no one would dare even consider breaking with that convention as you say over the last 10 years but by the same token that doesn't leave the ecb with any leverage you know you can you can put pressure on the bcci quote unquote but they don't really feel any pressure. They don't care if if England and Australia, as the more powerful boards, showed up and said you should start changing the way you do this. They would say, "Well, no." Um, next question, you know, and, and on we go. There's no way that like that that movement has to come from within, and there has to be enough of an incentive. And it's quite fascinating that Pakistan, as a cricketing country has been able to go off and turn itself into a T20 power despite not having access to the biggest, best, brightest, most expensive, highest standard T20 league. They've made their own league, which is really good quality um, comparatively, and they've turned their T20 international side into a one of the best in the world. They've been mm. way beyond competitive in that format, but they've had to do it themselves on, on isolation, as it were. Yeah, and Sir Ganguly running the BCCI now, I wonder, I mean, he's not been in the job that long, but he played cricket in Pakistan. I mean, in his playing career, it's before things got to the point where that wasn't wasn't really viable. So, uh, and given that, uh, you know, countries are now going to Pakistan to play international cricket, I wonder whether there might be, yeah, it, it's hard to see from, from the cheap seats where we're sitting and observing all of this. It's, it, you know, passions run so high and so hot when tweeting out, that column last night looking through the comments i mean it's, it's ferocious absolutely yeah. ferocious and i mean it's, it's tough to find middle ground when when that's the starting point yeah and india is currently being run by a right-wing populist government who have every vested interest in maintaining a, a fevered atmosphere of imminent conflict and, and pakistan's the the easy one to point to and you look the same goes on both sides of the border to an extent that as long as you can maintain a big external enemy then it's easier to detract from internal criticism so uh, the geopolitics of that are, are not really something that we've got the qualifications to get into on the final word but we can talk about 
the WBBL. Not that we are, that, that we are um, qualified to talk about. <laughs> we're very qualified to talk about that. I feel feel very confident because I watched almost all of every game that happened because five of the games were washed out in Sydney. There were supposed to be eight games on the first weekend, a lot of rain. We ended up getting one game in on the Saturday where I was, where the, the strikers uh, smashed the Hurricanes. And then we had most of an innings of the Stars looking pretty good before that got washed out. And then there was a, a truncated sort of nine over a side match the next day with the Sixers. More importantly, as far as listeners to the final word are concerned, the Sydney Sixers, guess who got picked in the 11? Guess who made it? Jody Hicks. Bam. First game of the season straight into the 11. And her first game of the season was a washout. Not a ball was bowled, but they did have the toss. So that means it counts as a game on, yep. on her record. So that was game number 20, I think, from memory. It was 21, wasn't her. it? So 21 was, the, 21 was the no result and then 22 was the TFC. Yeah. And, and then, yeah, so then um, the... Next game, she also got picked and I think was listed at number 10. Then they got the game reduced to nine overs while the sixes were bowling, where she didn't get a bowl. And then when they were batting, they got rained off halfway during their nine overs and then came back to have it reduced to six overs in which she didn't bat. So she was listed as an all-rounder on on the sheets with the ball symbol and the bat symbol, but um, was not required for either in that career. That now spans six six seasons, um, never bowled a ball batted three times, made five runs. The uh, I, I picked up on Twitter this weekend, Jeff, uh, that there's a lot more interest in this now, isn't there? A lot of people mm. have been watching uh, very closely. And when she was on the team sheet named as an all-rounder to come in at 10, yes, uh, we'll put it this way. There's a lot of focus on when she when she walks out to bat the next time for the Sixers, mm. and let's hope it's soon, that she'll have a lot of support out there, not least from the final word community. If, uh, if Jeff, I'm just, across town, if there's a simultaneous game that day and I'm across town, I will run to whatever ground she's in <laughs> to watch that live. Like, I'll be there. Well, well I mean, what is it about uh, Sydney and, and Rain? Again, as you say, five of the eight games affected by it so far. The next time that there are games scheduled is Saturday. Four games scheduled on Saturday and it's meant to piss down. It could mean yep. uh, that of the first 12 games of this big bash in the bubble, that only three have been completed and one of those was a nine-over smash. I mean, it, it's, it, there's nothing you can do to safeguard against it, but I wonder with... The record of rain in Sydney, of course, it rains more in Sydney than in any other capital in Australia. They might have been well served in spreading the games out across multiple days rather than eggs and baskets and so on. Because if it does get rained out this Saturday, then then suddenly this is... I mean, I'm not saying the competition is marginalised. I mean, they've got plenty of games to, to catch up on, but it's a terrible start. It's the wrong foot to get off on after so much effort's been made to get the comp on in the first place. You do also wonder when... You've got, say, back-to-back games on weekends and so on, whether it would be completely impossible to have more days in the week, you know, to have some reserve days. Yeah. To, if, if you can't play on the Saturday, why not play on the Monday if that team's not playing again till the Wednesday or whatever it might be? It's not like they're playing every day of the week. They're playing Saturdays, Sundays, and then there are... Uh, there's a smaller number of games on some Tuesdays and some Wednesdays. So for the most part, there are still extra days in the week where some of those games could get through. A lot of the grounds don't even have crowds in, so you wouldn't need to worry about that. And, you know, it's not like there'd be necessarily very high demand for, for some of those grounds at other times. But look, I've, I'm, I'm not on the planning committee, but it's... But it's it does seem like... Even, but even now, I mean, I remember during the World T20, which was affected by rain in Sydney at the pointy end as well, of course, England... Uh, missed out on their chance to make it through to the World Cup final. And Australia nearly nearly did as well, let, let's not forget. We talked about reserve days then and, and, and different degrees of flexibility that might be shown. If all of these games have been backloaded to this Saturday, 
and we know the forecast is grim. Surely the WBBL isn't so big that flexibility can't be shown between now, we're recording on uh, Tuesday evening Australian time, and Saturday afternoon when the next game's scheduled, where they might be able to try and fit it in between times? Or am I being too simplistic, or, or, or is it the case that, I mean, can there be some, you know, some lever pulled that they get games on in days that are currently scheduled for training? Yeah, I, I would have thought there could be some flexibility on that, you know, that... The main problem with shifting games is always the logistics in terms of everything else that's required to put mm. a game on. So the you know the broadcasts, um, the the planning, the catering, the security, and all the rest of it. But you'd think in a COVID year where things are at a pe- people at the ground are at a minimum anyway, that mm. wouldn't mm. be as hard. And in terms of say a broadcaster claiming they've missed out on the game because they couldn't be there to broadcast it on a Wednesday or a Thursday, they've already missed out because it got rained off. You know they're not they're not going to gain the game back because it's played at another time. They haven't lost anything. So that point of view has is often brought up, and it's it's a pretty logically absurd one. One of the three games that was completed, the one that you unfortunately were scheduled on for was a shocker. So the Hurricanes all out for 84, despite us talking them up um, the other day. The, they were but all they, out. They've lost, they've lost Maisie Gibson for the season and they've lost Taylor Valomik for the season. Not that either of them would have strengthened the batting a lot, mm, but mm. to, you know, to Gibson particularly very experienced with the Thunder so far and, and Valomik one of the most exciting players in, in Australian cricket, you know, the young speedster who's the fastest in the game at the moment in Australia so that's that's a massive setback for them and only Naomi Stallenberg with 28 and Chloe Tryon with 20 made it into double figures Darcy Brown and Amanda Wellington we're going to keep pushing a case Jeff no matter what that they took three wickets apiece and then the strikers did the job with six overs to spare Teen Wolf Laura Wolvart 51 from 42 so uh, the strikers off to the perfect start. In the other game, the Perth Scorchers uh, were up against the Heat. Interesting fixture, Jeff, due to the player movement between those two clubs in the off-season, but it was the Heat who got the job done, despite the fact that Perth batted quite consistently throughout. They just didn't go hard enough. Yeah, Beth Mooney made runs against her old side first up, and but then the run chase was only a couple of wickets down, and, and Grace Harris batted really well, made a, a, a sort of... She's talked about watching MS Dhoni. I hope she hasn't been watching recent MS Dhoni, but you know, <laughs> watching a few years ago MSD, saying that it doesn't matter if you're getting off slowly at the start if you know you've got the the power to make it up later. So she had quite a mature sort of innings, was quiet at the start and then started scoring more freely. But Laura Volvart in the other match, my God, like that was gorgeous. She She batted beautifully you know the way that she does all proper cricket stuff but with more urgency with way better placement than we've seen in the past so she was carving over backward point driving boundaries down the ground you know lofting over cover she looked absolutely sensational in in her first hit out and Darcy Brown 16 years old Seema quick and you know, three for thirteen that she picked up off four overs, pretty amazing start. One to watch. I like that with Laura Wolver. It was no guarantee she'd keep playing cricket uh, when she had a decision to make whether she'd complete her medical degree or, or stay on the circuit. And it sounds as though she's she's made a good call in in the short term as far as uh, the way her games develops over the last twelve months or so. And in that nine over smash, it ended up becoming a, a six over smash just in the way that they revised the target and further rain. But the strikers made sixty eight for seven, albeit going the tonk given they only had nine overs to bat. 
uh, Marazan cap three for Elise Perry bowled a couple of overs, which is very encouraging. Um, the Sixers uh, reached their revised target of 47 in 5.4 overs to win by nine wickets. Elisa Healy continuing her form from the internationals, making 27 off 16 uh, before, as you mentioned already, Hicksy had a thanks for coming, a DMB and a DMB. Um, yes, well, two, two, two times around on the first weekend. I'll tell you what's really interesting is at the top of the all-time run scorers list in the WBBL, Meg Lanning made 50 for the Stars in their game that got washed out. So she went above 2,000 runs. Um, so there are now six players past the 2,000 mark with Healy, Villani, Sophie Devine, Mooney and Perry, the others. They're all neck and neck pretty much at the moment in that so Lanning, Healy and Villani are all within 17 runs of one another just past <laughs> 2000. Sophie Devine at 2200 and then at the top Beth Mooney with 2600 and then Elise Perry's 13 runs ahead of her. So Mooney and Perry are sort of vying for, for top of the pops and then that three of Villani, Healy and Lanning they'll all sort of be in the same ballpark for the next few games. So in terms of you know, who's on top. All of those six players are playing this season and uh, it's going to be a little race that I'm keeping an eye on throughout. Yeah, and Lanning was the first to that mark because, of course, she missed the 17-18 season with that that shoulder injury. So an unbeaten 51 out of the Stars, 127 for four from 17 overs before the rain came against the Thunder. Jeff, the main talking point wasn't really about the cricket, though, was it? The the Sydney Thunder, um, before the game, took a knee uh, uh, in solidarity with Black Lives Matter, as did Catherine Brunt and Nat Siver from the Melbourne Stars. The Strikers did as well, and the Hurricanes did on, on the first right. day. But it just it was just interesting. I mean, I, I, I didn't... I must admit, I, I haven't read an awful lot about this, but there was certainly... A, a, there was a lot of activity on Twitter that it, it appeared as though the Thunder had made a decision. And I saw Rachel Haynes had, had said that their team would, would, you know, had made a call on this. Uh, and that... Um, a couple of the imports had from the stars, but the whole team didn't, and it just jarred a little bit because it, it probably that, that I suppose it was one of those situations where not a lot of thought perhaps went into it beforehand, and suddenly it was happening. And if you haven't talked about it before, or is that how you interpreted it? My understanding of it was it was something that was talked about um, by the team, particularly by the teams that had West Indies players in the team. So the Hurricanes have Haley Matthews. Mm-hmm. And the strikers have Stefani Taylor, although she's still in was still in hotel quarantine on the weekend and wasn't able to play. And so those two teams didn't have any um, hesitation about doing it. They to them it seemed more obvious that it was the right thing to do. Whereas perhaps for some of the other teams, that's I mean you know that's the definition of racial privilege, isn't it? When you don't have to think about these things because sure. it, it doesn't come up. It's not relevant to you. It doesn't affect you. So. Yeah, my understanding of it was it was something that the teams that had it, uh, that had visibility on it, were the ones who made decisions to act on it. But quite a few of the teams have been, I think maybe all of the teams have been doing the the, the barefoot circle yeah, thing um, have, well before yeah. the game. So, so it's not a, it's not sort of televised. It's not a, a gesture publicly in the same way as taking the knee just before play. But it's something that they do sort of among themselves and, and both of the squads, you know, before both of the games at Hurstville on that I was at on Sunday, both of the squads joined to do that as a, as a to make a circle as a joint enterprise before their matches. So, you know, that's happening at the same time. So I, I think there may, you know, perhaps people get confused about the number of symbolic gestures being made or, you know, what constitutes sufficiency. 
Yeah, the barefoot circle, certainly. I don't want to give the impression that, that, uh, that there's been a decision taken not to take a knee, by the way. I mean, obviously, the barefoot circles are important. The women's national team have been way out in front on this for a number of years in terms of recognising our Indigenous culture and, and so on. So it's just, I think, probably just one of those, um, you know, mustn't have been talked about. And, and suddenly it looked to us anyway on, on the feed that Siver and Brunt, saw what was going on and immediately joined in. However, of course, they've had an entire summer in England where that's been de rigueur. So I wonder how that'll play out next week. Uh, but, well, there might not be any games. So let's hope that somehow uh, they get on, <laughs> Jeff, and you're not, you're not spending the whole weekend watching it rain instead of calling the cricket because I know how frustrating that must be. And then relevant to that, related to that, is Jeffrey Boycott during the week. Um, surprise, surprise that this came out in the Daily Mail. Uh, getting out there on his 80th birthday to complain about having been uh, let go by the BBC and that this was all political correctness gone mad and that he'd been he'd been got rid of because he he wasn't young enough or female enough or or was the wrong colour because, you know, they didn't want, you know, old white men anymore and blah, 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 and that, and that equality had come before quality and all this absolute bullshit, which I think it was Hypercost who picked up on this first on Twitter saying, there are women of colour working at the BBC now. None of them have taken Boycott's job because the person who took his job was Alistair Cook. So if you want, you know, a white boring opening batsman who was given a knighthood he got replaced by a white boring opening batsman who was given a knighthood so in in terms of like for like replacements you can't get much more like for like than that and then you know there's no surprise that a, a paper with absolutely no shame still led with this and still put up as its picture for this particular article Isha Gua who's been working at the BBC for a decade well before Boycott was ever um, at risk of being pushed out and does a different job to him she's a ball by ball commentator and he's a special comments guy so just a a disgraceful episode all around yeah yeah let's sort of pick the bones out of this a little bit so first of all the mail rewrote the telegraph interview so Boycott does an interview with Nick Holt a video interview for his 80th birthday and you know what fair enough Boycott's worked with The Telegraph for years. It's his 80th birthday. You know, it makes sense that you'd be reflecting upon a life in cricket at that juncture. Even putting aside the, everything that happened earlier this year when he was jettisoned from the BBC's test coverage, it, it makes sense that there'd be an interview to mark that point in time. However, when the discussion moved to this topic, I mean, you know, quality over equality, or equality over quality, I should say, the way that he put it, was the pull-out quote, and understandably uh, so again. Uh, and for all the inconsistencies that you already raised there, Jeff, and that fantastic um, hypercost uh, thread and Isha Guar's brilliant uh, response to it where she uh, put a post up on, on social media, which kind of caught fire understandably so I just think that with Boycott he's had a great run he's 80 Uh, he's at the age when not many people continuing continue to work in the media beyond that age or indeed well before that to start with he's been on radio for 14 years um, after he stopped working on television in 2005 that is a fantastic way to finish your career 14 years on test match special flying around the world doing the cricket also doing the highlights as well for the majority of that time on channel 5 like he's had a great run he was made a knight last year um, we talked about um, why we felt that was a poor decision he was campaigning for it obviously for years but the comments he made in the past about he, you know he would have been more likely to have received the knighthood had he blacked up his words which he said just in 20 17 yet uh, two years on from that received that that honor he's had a great run in so many ways can't we just now say all right that's your last comment 
we don't interview you anymore. You're not the sort of guy we seek out for comment. We don't jump on the phone when we want a hot take about something where you know you'll get a, a, a niggly comment about one of the women or someone who's a different colour to him in the case of the way that he articulated that, that comment uh, about equality and quality last week. Just leave him be. Leave him be in retirement. Don't jump on the phone to him. Let's leave him out of the public discourse. And I think that this is the right time to do that. And hopefully that intervention he made last week will be the last major one. Leave him be. He's had a great run. Well, uh, you could say hopefully it will, but I doubt it will because, you know, if they know they can turn him into a renter quote for something incendiary to pop in the paper, then there'll be people who still do it. But that's our responsibility. It's kind of my point. I, I think it's like, I think it's our collective responsibility as, as members of the cricket media and members of the media more generally. I mean, it's like, I've used this comparison with Morrissey before. I mean, Morrissey is unfortunately an unwell man, palpably so. Everything that he fought and campaigned for in his music for 30 years has gone down the toilet in the last five or 10 years as he's clearly got some fairly big issues, to put it mildly. And yet you still see him appear in the newspaper 10 times a year saying something ridiculously racist because he's now effectively an unwell bloke. It doesn't mean you should keep calling up the bloke for comment. For mine, it's taking advantage of, of that situation. With Boycott, it's not the same as that. He's obviously got his marbles, but the observation I'm making here is that we need to just stop calling him for this comment. It doesn't add anything to the conversation. All it does is, is drag it backwards. Yeah, and, and I'm, I agree with that, but I'm sure that there will be people who would love to keep calling him because they know that they'll get some clicks and... They'll get a headline out of it. So don't be surprised if you see him being the dialer quote for the next few years um, when they're looking for something a little bit spicy in the most derivative and, and pointless way. The IPL, we should touch on that. We're at a point of the season where each team has two or three games to go. Uh, Chennai Super Kings are the only team that are definitely knocked out at the time of recording. Sunrisers Hyderabad are hanging on by their fingernails. Rajasthan, Kolkata, Kings 11, they're all fighting for that fourth spot. Um, but, you know, there are a couple of teams there that could take out a couple of the teams higher up as well in Bangalore, Delhi and Mumbai. So nobody's sort of definitively on top. There have been a couple of higher up the table teams that have lost in recent times. Uh, the Glenn Maxwell team, Kings 11, have put together a good run of wins to get back into the top four, and there's a fair bit going on. It's set up pretty well, isn't it? Ten games to go in the regular season as we record. As you say, most teams have got two or three games to go. A lot of those teams in the top five or six play each other in the final stretch as well, which also means that they'll be sort of stealing points off each other. Kings 11, good story. I think they had won uh, one of their first six or seven, seven games, something like that. They were really battling and they've rattled off three wins in a row. Maxwell didn't bat in the most recent of those, but he made 32 not out a couple of games ago and uh, he's been bowling well too. But Chris Gale has been the main change in that team uh, in the runs uh, on two of three occasions, uh, hitting plenty of sixes, still somehow managing to do it at age 42 or 43 or whatever he is now. Still very effective uh, once he gets himself in. So Kings 11 now have jumped from seventh spot to fourth spot through that run of wins and uh, they've got a couple of games to go but yeah there's lots of different scenarios there's that log jam between fourth and seventh Sunrisers Hyderabad need to win all three of their games albeit against teams in the top four but because of their net run rate which is positive not negative there's still a chance of uh, of getting into fourth spot uh, with David Warner there so uh, yeah it should be good fun over the next week or so watching that shake out and then we'll come back to the IPL in, in more depth around the playoffs. The statistical notes to keep apprised of Chris Gale across all 
professional T20 games, including internationals and domestic, is going to probably in the next couple of weeks bring up his 1,000th six. <laughs> like he's going to have scored 6,000 runs in sixes. Blimey. He's got 13,500 runs in T20 cricket, 993 sixes. Um, it's truly astonishing and truly ridiculous. I was also pretty interested to note, and I've been keeping an eye on this over the last couple of weeks, David Warner went past 5,000 IPL runs. I think it's easy as an Australian cricket supporter to think of Warner, the Australian player, and not really have noticed what he's done in the IPL. He's been there right from the start. He was signed in that mm. first season in 2009, was it, when when he just played a couple of domestic games and that T20 for Australia at the MCG, and he got bought up by Delhi, I reckon, in the first edition and made a bunch of money and, and bought that white Range Rover with the DW number plates and hasn't looked back since. So... At that point, at the point that he went past 5,000 a couple of weeks ago, he was only the fourth player to do it. So Coley, Suresh Rana, who's not playing this year, and Rohit Sharma were the three ahead of him. And then for Warner to do that as an overseas player, you know, as a, as a non-Indian player, is astonishing. Shikhar Dhawan has joined that club in the last week or so as well. But there are still only five players who've got 5,000, 5,000 IPL runs. You know, when you add that to everything he's done internationally, it, and he's he's got them from far fewer games than any of the other four batsmen around him as well. They're all under 6,000, but Coley and Reiner and so on have played a lot more matches, you know, 50 or 60 more matches. So it's an astonishing achievement for Warner and just not one I think we've paid a lot of attention to in Australia. Yeah, I think I sort of first realised what a presence he was was in about 2016 when I first started calling IPL games and seeing how loved he is over there. He clearly has more fun playing IPL than almost anything that he does in his professional uh, cricketing career. You know, with Warner at his best, there's that glow, there's that sparkle. Well, he kind of has that every time he walks out in the IPL and he's... His record follows suit. I'm not sure whether it's less pressure. That's probably not the right formulation. But it's just that it's an environment where it's almost exclusively positive about him. And we know that you know he's got a healthy ego and the fact that he's considered a great leader in that competition too, having led the Sunrisers to the, to the title, I think it was in 2017. So... And he's been the leading run scorer in the comp a couple of times and, and so on, including last year. So, yeah, across the board, I think that Warner, you see the best of him, not just as a player, but also kind of as a, a, a member of a team and, and leading that team. So I wouldn't be surprised at all, even though they've only won four of their 11 games so far. If they get on a roll, you know, with, with uh, three games to go in the regular season, if they can win all of those, I think they're playing them all at Sharjah as well. Small venue. If Warner gets hot... You know, you couldn't rule them out. Well, if he gets a couple of big scores in his last three games, he'd go to second behind Coley on the all-time runs list, which would be pretty remarkable. The Sheffield Shield has maybe maybe got a little less attention, I'll say, than the IPL, but probably still a lot more than it might normally. <laughs> the, the cricket nuffies in Australia have been locked onto this. Um, the games have been streamed. Some of them have been on cable TV. Cameron Green has drawn a lot of eyes, nearly made a double hundred um, in his last game. He's able to bowl again this week as well. This is the 21-year-old all-rounder from WA who's 
getting a lot of people very excited and, and you can hear the chants already. They're saying number six in the test team, six, six, six. But, you know, they might be a bit premature to throw him in there for this summer. Maybe they're premature or maybe the timing's spot on. And what's that Greg Chappell quote about? You've got to pick fruit when it's ripe. I mean, uh, he feels pretty ripe to me. I mean, granted, you're working off the basis of live streams and, you know, you're seeing scorecards, but his numbers already over 1,000 first-class runs, nearly 1,100 first-class runs at 52 in 17 games. He's only 21 years old. Four centuries, including that 197 against New South Wales last week. Very strong attack across 438 balls. Maybe that second figure is as mm. important as the 197, a strike rate of 44 through the innings. He, uh, you know, in reply to a big score from New South Wales where they made 443, WA make 534, Whiteman down the other end making it a century as well. But it was all about green. So that happens at, I think that was more sort of day two, day three. Then on day four, across the parklands there at Karen Rolton Oval, in the first innings for South Australia, Travis Head gets run out for two and SA are rolled for 195. Tasmania make a truckload of runs and Doran, Jake Doran, who's uh, been sort of in and out of that Tasmanian side, he makes 112. Tim Payne uh, makes another first-class 100. It was a... a Number three. Such a talking point for Payne uh, when you uh, look at his career a couple of years ago, but made one for Tassie last year and he's picked up one here as well. But... All the emphasis going into that third innings of a game that was almost certainly going to be drawn was Travis Head because suddenly on the other ground, there's Cam Green making 197. There's Travis Head getting out cheaply in the first dig, but Head responded. 171 not out out of South Australia's 347 for five in their second innings in that high-scoring draw. They were both high-scoring draws, but it meant that Head just put a bit of space between him and the young man, which does mean, Jeff... This week, well, the next round starts on Friday. Uh, Victoria uh, are in, of course, for the first time in the season. So Victoria are playing South Australia. Uh, New South Wales are playing Queensland. But in WA against Tasmania, for WA, Cam Green, and for Tasmania, for the first time this season, after a couple of games off after the England tour, Matthew Wade. Now, the number six is Matthew Wade. It's, it's not Travis Head, even though the pressure mm. was on Head last week. Now, from the way I sort of interpret this, Jeff, Matthew Wade shouldn't really be under pressure. He's been pretty important to a successful team, and they're always reluctant to change successful teams. But if you're just going with who could make way for Green, if they make a decision that they want this guy to play this summer, then it isn't really Head that will necessarily be under pressure. It'll be Wade, and he has back-to-back shield games now for Tasmania, again, having missed uh, the first two after coming back from England, where there'll be a lot of attention on him, I'm sure. Time to swing those little muscly tattooed arms and make <laughs> some more runs. But look, after I think that the hundreds he made in the Ashes carry more weight than you know what his average is across his last 10 tests, given that the first one was important in setting them up for the that win in the first test, which helped them level the series by the end of it. And the last one was under extreme fire from Archer mm, at the Oval. Mm. You know, that was it was one of the braver test innings I've seen. He really took on Archer and, and mm. absolutely gave no ground. And that was super impressive as far as temperament goes, you know, with two players really enjoying going as hard at each other as they possibly could. And, and the same applied with Wagner, especially, you know, think about Perth last year, a mm. test match that... It wasn't in the balance at that point, but, you know, in the second innings with Wagner and Southey hitting Wade time and time again under lights with the pink ball. I mean, yeah, it doesn't feel like Wade should be under pressure. I come back to that point. But it's purely on account of the fact that Green's sort of has that irresistible force about him at the moment. 
And as you say, he can bowl again this week. He did an interview with uh, Adam White on RSM uh, yesterday. White is a massive, massive fan of Greens. And Greens now, for the first time since 2019, able to bowl again. Remember, he's got a a first-class return of 9 for 42 match figures uh, back in his first season as a teenager a couple of years ago. So he's a legitimate dual threat. And if they want to use him this summer as a number six who could bowl a few overs here or there, they don't need to worry about him being one of the frontline seamers. It kind of makes sense. And considering that every legitimate dual threat in Australia gets ruined by the time they're about 23 by exactly. the pressure and expectation, you might as well get him in now. <laughs> well, no, but I mean, I, I think where they ruin them is they bowl them too much, don't they? Yeah. Whereas this guy, if he can only bowl short, sharp bursts, like it does add up to a compelling argument if they want to go down this path. It's just where does he fit in? So mm-hmm. good problem to have for Australian cricket. We haven't said that for a while. All right, before we hit the break, let's take time for a little, a neat little, quick little, just a diversion off the motorway, little round of Nerd Pledge, the game, the final word game, the favourite game of this show that we play with people from our patron page. They support the show by sending us a number of dollars and cents that equate to a cricketing number, and we have to work out what the cricketing number is. The first of our two Nerd Pledge pledges today comes in from Richard Bond McNally and I like anyone who has three names it always just makes it more satisfying to say them it makes them sound like they might be a president of some kind and Richard Bond McNally has sent through $3.66 now $3.66 is one of the cap numbers that I know off by heart because it's Ricky Ponting's Mm -hmm. cap number and it's in the middle of a great era of Australian debutantes. There are there are a lot of them around the three fifties to the three eighties, who are significant players. Three six six is ponting. It's also, and I know Adam that you're generally the cap numbers of your province, and this, the, you're the one who likes to dig into the stories. But it's also the cap of the least fortunately one of the least fortunately named cricketers for England. Three sixty six was Dick Spooner. Uh, good old Dick Spooner, what a, which just sounds like an insult to me. What a Dick Spooner. That guy is an absolute Dick Spooner. And then all I could think of was there was a popular phrase for a while where someone would invite you to eat a bowl of dicks, and I was thinking, well, you'd obviously do that with a spoon, so then you'd be a Dick Spooner. So I don't really know what Dick Spooner did on the cricket field, and I'm sorry to disrespect the legacy of Dick Spooner, but thankfully with England cap numbers, 366 was probably about 110 years ago, which means that I don't need to worry about getting an angry call. No, I think he... He was a keeper in the 50s, but couldn't quite hold down a spot, if, if I recall oh, correctly. Oh, I, I bet he was. If you can find a good Dick Spooner, he's definitely a keeper, I'll tell you. <laughs> uh, well, what I'm going to do, though, with this, uh, thanks Richard Bond McNally, is go back to where we were on story time just last week, Jeff. So we were looking will. at... I bet you will. You'll never stop going back to story time. <laughs> we, 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 we were just talking about 364 on the show, thanks to Chris Unwin oh, yeah. uh, on story time. We've dealt with it a couple of times, and where we got to on this was that 364 was the partnership that Neil Fairbrother and Michael Atherton were involved in, which was a record for Lancashire at the time. Well, in that innings, that's when Fairbrother made 366. It's this crazy game at the Oval where Mm. in 1990... Surrey makes 707 in the first innings. So that's Ian Gregg, the brother of Tony, made 291. So Surrey just piling it on for a couple of days. And in response, Lanks say, fuck it. They, they bat for two and a half days themselves and make 863 in reply. And that's where Fairbrother makes his 366, of course, his highest score in first-class cricket. Only faced 407 balls, uh, to be fair. I mean, we were talking about Cameron Green facing 438 for 197. Well, 
Fairbrother faced 407 for his 366. And that's where the partnership occurred with Atherton. They put on 364 for the third wicket. Uh, and at the time, it was Ather's high score in um, first-class cricket as well, making 192. So there's only been one time 366 has been made in first-class cricket, and that was from Neil Fairbrother. And the fact that it links back to what we were discussing uh, on the weekend, it's just uh, it's too sweet for me. It's got to be that. Have, what do you say, Richard? Yeah, look, I'm with you. Um, Richard, let us know. Send us a message on the DMs if we've got it right. If not, we'll revisit it. Our second number for today comes in from Nathan Garland, and that number is three dollars and eighty-five cents. Three eighty-five. Now, Adam, you mentioned earlier in the show Laura Vulvert, the South African women's batter, having to decide whether to keep playing cricket or to give it up for a medical career when she was about eighteen. And that put me in mind of Jomari Luchtenberg, which is a Dutch name um, that has those noises in it which we're not always very good at, but there we go. She was a South African player as well, an early sensation. She was playing for the senior Gauteng women's team when she was 11 years old, and she made a test debut for South Africa at the age of 14. That was back when South Africa used to play tests for the women's team. So that must have been in 2004, I reckon. She made 74 in that test debut and then she went on to play 26 one-dayers, in which time she made 550s and a couple of hundreds. She still got the South African women's record for the highest ODI score, 153 not out. And after these one-dayers, her average was 38.5385 as per Nathan Garland's pledge. Jamari retired from cricket at the age of 18 because she couldn't make a living out of it and... There was no possibility at the time of, of getting paid to play cricket. So in 2007, she called it off, which means she's still only 31 years old, which means oh. she could be at her peak had she stuck with the game. But she Come had to back. make the Laura Vulvart decision. And I'm saying bring back Jamari. Who knows what she could be up to at 31 years of old. Get her in the nets. Like the Cricketers can be playing really well up until their late 30s. She's probably still got six or seven good years in her. Jamari, if you're listening to this, please get back in the nets and consider a comeback. But 385 from Nathan Garland, I'm saying, is the 38.5 ODI average of Jamari Luchtenberg. I also want Hypercourse to go and work out uh, what the biggest gap is between a woman playing a one-day international. So how many years have elapsed? What's the record? And mm. maybe and maybe Jamari can knock that off as well in the process. Uh, 385, Bert Sutcliffe made a 385 for Otago against Canterbury in 1952. That was the highest score for a left-hander in professional cricket until your until your mate Brian Lara came around and made his oh. 501 at Jeff. Brian Lara, because interestingly, the previous number was 366. Which was which the score is what Brian Lara had to make to get the highest world record in test cricket at the time. And now 385 is a record that Brian Lara went past on the way to 501. There's always a Brian Lara link. And there's also a, another link back to left-handers and quirky names uh, on what you said before. Dick Richardson, uh, he was a, a one-test wonder left-handed batsman uh, in 1957 for England against the West Indies at Trent Bridge. He was the 385th man to play test cricket for England. But it was the first time that siblings played together, he and his brother Peter, in the same England test 11 to that point in the 20th century, which I thought was quite in keeping with no pledge. Yeah, and, and Richard Richardson obviously always looking at his brother Peter and thinking, why did you get 
the reasonable name. Why wasn't it me? <laughs> that is Nerd Pledge for this week. If you'd like to play, it's very easy. Go to patreon.com slash the final word. You'll find us there. You can sign up and put in a pledge number. And in doing so, you can help us keep making this show week to week. We enjoy it very much and uh, we appreciate your support. Nerd Pledge, get amongst it. That we do, and a reminder that I forgot to mention off the top of the show and should have is that we've got Stuart McGill coming up for our live Zoom. If you're one of our patrons uh, and want to be part of that, or indeed if you want to have a chance to talk to Stuart McGill with us, uh, we're still haven't quite hammered out a date, uh, such are the, the challenges during uh, COVID-19, but we are we are getting there. It'll be in November, so jump on patreon.com forward slash the final word, pop your pledge in, and it'll get you an automatic golden ticket uh, to the final word Zoom with Stuart McGill. All right, Adam, we are going to take our customary mid-show breather in which we still don't stop talking anyway because that's how we do breathers on the final word and after that we will have Lungani Zama on South African cricket and a little ending show section of Happy Birthday Sachin Jeff it's been a couple of weeks. Tell me about the award-winning Zolio. Zolio, Adam. It's the magic box that lets you text anyone anywhere in the world via the power of satellite technology. Wherever you are on top of a mountain, in the middle of the sea, it turns your smartphone into a satellite communications device. They won an award, the Australian Business Awards, a couple of weeks ago. They've won another one, the Australian Communications Industry Awards for small and medium enterprises. This isn't large enterprises. These aren't the big dogs. These are the little battlers, the Aussie battling underdogs who just want you to be able to send a text or an email from a raft in the middle of the Pacific where you're trying to reenact the Thor Heyerdahl expedition and float to Tahiti from the coast of Chile and you want to be able to say what's up to somebody back home a la Paulie Shaw. So, look, Zolio, it's it's like I said, it's a little box that you carry in your pocket, you turn it on and then it starts talking to your regular smartphone and then you use an app on your phone and you can send a text to a phone number or to an email address and it will send it anywhere in the world and then those people can reply to you with their own words and you can do that no matter if you've got phone signal or not, if you're in the middle of nowhere, middle of a desert, top of a mountain, doesn't matter. That's what it can do. That's why it wins awards. And if you're just coming out of lockdown in Melbourne, I mean, you wouldn't want to be in a situation where you're sending that late night text message, the you up, the late drink, um, mm -hmm. should we catch up? Never caught up before, may never catch up again, but time for a little catch up. You can't get mm -hmm. your message out due to not having any signal. It's the best form of protection is a little device. The second can, best form of protection. I say the best protection because you don't need to get to part two if you don't get to part one. Attach it to your belt, uh, which you can, and I maybe that'll help with getting to part two as well. Attach a little satellite phone to your belt. Who's to know? Yeah. I'd be attracted by it. And then send your message. Don't get caught out. Don't get caught short. Not being able mm. to send a late night text now that you're out of lockdown That'd be a bloody disaster. It does have a clip, a clip attachment that lets you attach it to your belt if you think that will help. And look, if things don't pan out well, if, if the date's a disaster, there's a little hatch on the Zolio that you can open and there's a big red SOS button. And when you press that, a message goes to the team in, are they in Arizona? Somewhere like that. They're in the States who then will triage your location and uh, the nearest emergency services. They'll not triage it. They'll triangulate it. They'll work out exactly 
exactly where you are because your GPS location to the minute and to the second will be sent to them and then they'll contact emergency services in the local area to extract you. So it's got everything you need as far as protection goes, protection in every sense of the word. That's why it wins awards. That's why it's won two in the last couple of weeks. If you want to check it out, Z-O-L-E-O.com, Zolio.com, and then you too can be Zolio, Master of the Universe. Hi, I'm Dave Warner, and you're listening to The Final Word. This is The Final Word, and we're very pleased to have on the show today Lungani Zama, who's a freelance writer in South Africa, on mainly on cricket, the man who has his finger on the pulse and his ear to the ground pretty much wherever he goes. First of all, welcome to the show, Lungani. Thanks, Jeff. It's uh, my absolute pleasure to be here. Look, I wanted to talk to you because I know that you generally know most things in South African cricket before most other people. Um, you've, you've usually got the inside running. But what a mad sort of few months it's been and then what a mad week in particular. So the headline event, obviously, is that the whole board of Cricket South Africa have resigned. All, all 10 current members have stepped down in the last couple of days. Am I right? If, if I'm trying to summarise this, basically it's it's that the former CEO, Tabang Moro, was being investigated for uh, corruption, basically for illegitimate use of funds, was suspended. There was a report into his alleged wrongdoings. Then the report was suppressed and nobody's been able to see it. And the theory is that it might implicate other members of the board. Then you've had government in- intervention saying that the whole board has to go. You've had the board resisting that. And then eventually, as things have come towards the deadline, they've actually stepped down. Now, that comes from a recommendation from a group called the Members Council, who is an advisory group made up of all the provincial heads. But half of the people on the Members Council were also members of the board. So the Members Council recommended that the board members who were the same people should resign, and now they've done so. Am I just about right in that summary? Yeah, you sound like you've got the finger on the pulse uh, almost better than I do. Um, That is the executive summary. Um, and I think that that probably is where this, the problems really started when you've got people governing themselves almost. It's just, it's just can't be right, you know. That 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 conflict leads to the ineffective governance that we've had in our sport for a good few years, and it, it's it's led us to 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 where we are now. Tabang Maru it seems like a, the tip of the iceberg. As 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 crazy as his tenure was, there's a lot more people who were complicit to everything that went wrong under his watch. And and obviously um, there have been some changes personnel wise in that time, but there's some who've just sat quietly, like the acting president who recently left now, Beresford Williams. He's been part of it for the last several years, including during Harun Logat's time. So the cleanup was necessary, and 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 government intervened because there was a real resistance for change. I mean, there's been public calls, there've been stakeholder calls there have been media campaigns and you know some incredibly thick-skinned people have just sat and said oh no we're serving cricket we're serving the best of the game and finally thankfully uh, just before the 5 p.m deadline today south african time um they went yesterday and and the minister himself yesterday in in a in a televised uh, interview said that he's he's glad that that's finally happened because that's actually what they wanted they don't want to intervene um, they don't want to govern the sport. He's not interested in governing the sport. He just wants to make sure that the sport's being run properly, and that's good enough for him. 
Well, not to mention that if the government is running the sport, then the ICC could kick South Africa out of or, or suspend South Africa because that's part of the constitution of the ICC that the, the sport should be independent in each country that it's in. Well, exactly. I mean, that, that, that's pretty much the last thing South Africa needs at this time is to, to, to not even have the, the, the carrot of being a, an ICC nation dangling for potential sponsors and broadcasters because those are in short supply at the moment given everything that's happened in the past year, year and a half and maybe even before that. So, you know, England are supposed to, to arrive in a couple of weeks and even that was in jeopardy for a good while because the board uh, hadn't approved that trip and hadn't taken that application to the government itself. So there's been a lot of things that have had to happen quickly. And thankfully, they seem to finally be happening and we're expecting England to arrive in a couple of weeks, which I think for all cricket journalists and fans is going to be a huge relief to start talking about South African cricket from a cricket perspective and not from a boardroom and shenanigans perspective because it's been really, with COVID included, it's, it's been a winter to, to absolutely forget. So how does it work that a... a- that a members' council that's almost half made up of members of the board recommends that the entire board should resign. How did that come to pass politically? Yeah, look, there have been several uh, changes in that members' council. Um, there have been a lot of resignations on principle, whether you can call it principle, given that a lot of these people were sitting and presiding over time when they just let things fall apart. But there have been almost fresh blood, people with strong corporate uh, experience and expertise who came in and, and looked at it and said, as a member's council, um, you know, they, they, were, they, they finally broke the stranglehold of the seven who are on the board itself. It got diluted enough that there were, and it was only, it was very tight vote, it was seven to six. So even then, you know, it was an overwhelming majority to say that the common sense decision should be taken. But it, it finally happened because there were just enough good people, if I can put it that way, mm. who said, for the interests of the game, we just need to clear out and, and, and allow other people to take a chance to take this game forward. So in the end, it was uh, the the members of the members' council who were also on the board voted not to sack the board, whereas the rest of the members' council who were not on the board did vote to get rid of the board. Is that how it panned out? Yeah, pretty much. Um, and in fact, you know, because they, they, they've taken the board, even independents and non-independents, and there's still some people including a, a very outspoken non-independent uh, who's also uh, in charge of the social justice initiative that supposedly is going to retrospectively look at um, injustices in the game and, and maybe even financially compensate people, which is a minefield in itself. And she's gone off kicking and screaming, saying she can't understand why they've all been told to resign. They didn't have an option. They've been crisis managing something that wasn't created by them. But I think it's a lesson, a wider lesson for all uh, South African sports and the and the way they govern themselves. Because, as you know, if a sport is complicated as cricket and as complex as cricket, you do need some sort of foundation in the game to understand the complexities of it. And unfortunately, it's become a South African norm to politicise most things. And when you politicise something as crucial as a board administering a cricket game that's bleeding, it leads to this because people take the political view and not the cricket view. You know, a woman didn't travel because of politics, not because of cricket. They didn't travel because of politics and the politics that were currently at play within CSA against the government. So hopefully this is a lesson and, and, and we go back to to the days where people on that on that board 
and in that members' council have a vested interest in the good of the game. So what's the next step for the governance of the game? There's an annual general meeting scheduled for December. What happens in, in the interim and what happens? what's likely to happen at that AGM in terms of getting some sort of governance structure in place that in, that in the first instance is accountable and in the second instance can try to make some sort of repairs on all of the damage that's been done over the last three or four years? I think um, they've already appointed an interim task team uh, headed by Rian Richards, uh, who are sort of going to try and gather what is left. And I think they've already approached a few former board members from going w- way back now, and they're going to have to go way, way back. I think at one stage that even David Richardson was approached and he tentatively said he might advise, but I don't think he necessarily wants to be involved because it's just... You know, after all the years he's done at ICC, I don't think he wants to now wade in, into these waters yeah. and his retirement. But it, it's essentially trying to get a few wise men and women who can just oversee this bridge until the AGM. And then at that AGM, I think, obviously with, with no president and, 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 and no board, the onus then becomes on, on the members' council and the provinces to to take the game back to the people and 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 hire accordingly but uh, you know unfortunately in south african sport like i keep saying a lot of these things get politicized and the people who eventually get in power even tabang marura getting into the power that he eventually got to was based primarily on power and you know having this in your hands and and you're not doing it because you love the game you're doing it for the power that you're going to get within the game which is a crazy thing to do so I think a lot of the people in the game right now have realized that they let things slip and, 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 and there's going to be massive interest, obviously, on, on what happens in, in early December. So the financial investigation into Tabang Moro that still hasn't been released, is that likely to see the light of day? And what are the implications for, for others who were on the board at the time and others who, who may have known or, or been involved in what was going on? Yeah, that's that's the big question, and and the the members council themselves, even though they've taken this decision to finally dissolve the board, they've explained at length that there would be significant reputational damage to cricket if this report was released. And obviously, the question that we've asked is: is it more reputably damaging to expose the full investigation, or what you're currently doing, hiding it and sponsors? And all stakeholders sort of, you know, condemning exactly what you're doing. So, you know, what is more reputationally damaging? And that's currently the standoff. But they say it's significant. Um, and, and obviously there's a lot of board members or former board members now have had to step away from meetings discussing the, the finer details of just the summary. And it's, it's an exhaustive report. Um, but I think... It may have criminal implications, which is why they're, they're, they're walking around so tentatively. But um, mm. look, Tabang Maru will not go quietly. He's, he's already instructed his legal team to, to appeal. And I suppose if it becomes a criminal matter, then one way or the other, some of the, these details will emerge. 
Is the involvement of government through the sports minister recently more likely to make that see the light of day, that report, given that you know, there is an appetite now within the government for some accountability or, or is there more likely, are you more likely to get a cover-up, I suppose, if, if government figures get involved because sometimes there can be alliances and liaisons between uh, figures in power in, in various organisations? I think um, in a beautiful irony, the fact that our government is, has changed so often recently and even ministerial offices have changed there hasn't been time to form any kind of alliance mm. so he would far likely uh, want full exposure which is 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 good for the game and 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 again as much as he doesn't really know the finer details of the game itself his mandate is to make sure that cricket is clean and he he, he wants kids to play and he wants opportunities to play so his initial interest peaked when Makai Antini and, and the like came out and, 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 and spoke of their experiences, horrific experiences. And that's when he stood up firmly and said, well, you know, if cricket is, is, is doing this to our children, we can't allow them to carry on. And, mm-hmm. and then the boardroom shenanigans came to the fore. So his interest is, is not so much in covering it. He wants to expose it fully and, and let the game uh, be governed properly. The question with these sort of situations is, if you're trying to hide something, you're creating the possibility for people to imagine things even worse th- than what they actually are. You know, the the monsters in the shadows are much scarier than the ones when you turn the light on. I mean, is there any sense that that, that version of common sense might prevail, that, as you said earlier, it's, it's reputationally far worse to be seen to be covering something up than to be coming clean, no matter how bad it is? Well, absolutely, and this is what we've we've put to... I mean, the former president now, Nenzani, we had to almost beg and plead that he comes and speaks to the media on so many of these issues at the time, because if you say nothing, you, you give us the opportunity then to speculate as, as, as far as the imagination can go. Mm. And that, you know, that, that is the standing point with this summary, uh, well, this, this investigation and this forensic report, because everyone is saying, how bad can it really be? I mean, we've got even in the midst of COVID, we've had so much corruption with people plundering hundreds of millions of rands that were intended to save lives. And they've just, you know, lined their pockets, politicians, those have come to the fore. So how bad can yeah. cricket's corruption be? Yeah, in terms of, you know, credit card expenses or some international trips that shouldn't have taken place or whatever it might be. So much of this is about the money. You've been on the money trail. You're releasing a forensic long read series through new frame the first couple of parts of, of which have been published uh, about what happened over the last couple of years with cricket south africa's financial situation dating it back to 2017 when when harun logat was in charge and was setting up this t20 global league which was supposed to be the south african ipl he was pushed out shortly before that league was supposed to go ahead it ended up being postponed and then cancelled this is the guy who set up the pakistan super league which has now become a really successful t20 competition have you got any closer to answering why he was pushed out at that time at at such a key time in the financial operations of csa you know it's a question that we've all lost ourselves and the only logical conclusion that one can reach is that Politically, it almost seemed as if the people around him, which would include the board, didn't want Harun Logat 
to be the knight in shining armor for delivering this himself because he wasn't allowed to elect a team that was going to deal specifically with the T20 Global League. He wasn't allowed to even just have a, a tournament director until the very last stages. But there were a lot of things that were at the final hurdle of negotiation, but they were at the negotiating table. So obviously, I, I think people saw that the gravy train was about to pull it to the platform and they figured, oh, we don't need Tarun to collect the tickets. We can take it from here. Mm-hmm. And pushing him off to international investors obviously spooked them and, 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 and the whole thing unraveled. But when you look at it and having spoken to several of the overseas investors who'd already put at least four or five million in, it was the lack of trust that, 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 that made this thing crumble. And, and he got pushed out. It, it was political that they thought Sabang Maru could, should, could do the job that Harun Logot was doing. Mm. And obviously he was not experienced enough to, to, to handle it. And, and, and when you look at it and you speak to people who dealt with him in the aftermath, that becomes very clear. And so in the end, a year later, uh, Tabang Moreau ends up running a completely different T20 league, the Mzansi Super League, which doesn't have the money of those team owners who were previously involved, even though the the Super League from the year before hadn't been officially cancelled or discontinued. It, it was just sort of in stasis. But this other competition was running in its place with much less income from sponsorships and broadcast deals and, and all of the rest of it. I mean, how do they get into a position where there are these two sort of leagues side by side, the one which is still an idea that was never realised and then something else put up in its place, which is a, a vastly inferior version? You know, again, another question that, that, that remains unanswered. It was you, you asked the CEO because he couldn't deliver in, or in your mind he wasn't updating you enough to give you <laughs> conviction of what was happening. And then the next CEO comes in, you allow him to produce this vastly inferior product in terms of commercial value. And, and that's somehow seen as, as heroic. You know, the reputational damage that it's done to cricket South Africa from international stakeholder perspective is massive because they just left owners at the lurch. And, and a lot of them didn't even bother with legal proceedings against cricket South Africa because they, they just felt that, uh, they, they would be wasting their time. They would get even more frustrated because there was just such a, a a lack of appreciation or even just ownership of the fact that, you know, you, you've really stuffed up here. And we had something good and, and we still, you know, they were still willing to wait the year and say, let's try again. And maybe let's let's go with people who've managed these things before that we'll find who will make us money and make you look good and make us money. And still CSA turned around and said, oh, no, 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 we, we, we've got this. We'll do this ourselves. Mm. We'll actually, we'll, we'll bankroll it ourselves, even though we don't have money, even though you want to make us money. So it's just, it's incredible. And, and that's the lack of accountability that the board was privy to. And, you know, when you ask them these questions, there are no answers. The president hasn't answered his phone in, in the last few months when people have, have tried to speak to him specifically on his legacy, which heavily involves what happened in 2017. Yeah, as your long raids show, you can already look back at that as a turning point for the worst. Do you fear that, you know, in another 10, 15, 20 years' time, you'll still be looking back at that moment as uh, that, that that moment as a turning point will become even more significant later on? Or, or do you think there is some cause for optimism that cricket in South Africa can recover from where it is at the moment? You only get one great opportunity like that, I think, especially for something as, as, as fickle as T20 leagues. Players have options that are mushrooming every year and, you know, some of them are becoming more and more attractive. 
and others are diminishing by the day. You know, we saw what happened with Canada. So when you finally get in the queue and you look up at the head office and you, your paperwork's not in order, or you've forgotten your, your passport or whatever, you know, the guy in charge is going to say, sorry, mate, the guys behind you are now ahead of you in the queue. Mm. So whether anybody would trust Cricket South Africa to ever put together a show like that, specifically in terms of international sponsors, I think players, as we all know, if the money is right, players will come from wherever and they'll, they'll yeah. find a window. But it's, the money comes from sponsors and the money comes from investors who are willing to take a punt on the product. That's why Graham Smith is, is, is pivotal in a lot of people's minds because of his international credentials and his standing. But then you've got to allow the guy to, to do the job that reassures the international community that South Africa is still a place worth investing in. Mm. So it'd be a hard sell. But, you know, you always retain a little bit of optimism. And in terms of attracting people with integrity to staff future boards, for instance, and, and to take up leadership positions within the administration, does Cricket South Africa have that clout or that attractiveness given how much it's been discredited over the last few months? Well, I think the simplest way to get back to that level of integrity is to take away the exorbitant fees that suddenly became a feature of, of being a board member, which money attracts the wrong people when you're not doing it for love and you're doing it for money and greed you know it pollutes the mind and it obviously corrupts the, those within before that there was small appearance fees or smaller by executive standards and the minute that it went to about half a million rand it became very interesting to people who are not really interested in the game whereas before there was a lot more integrity because it's 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 people who've maybe played cricket at a certain level and have become very successful commercially or um you know in business and they just want to make sure that the game stays in a good place they're fans at heart now you know you've got people who see an opportunity to to plunder yeah it, it's a pretty lucrative gig um if you only have to show up for a few board meetings and you know a few social events and a, and a couple of trips and still get to cash in a pretty sizable check well, yeah, and then you sit in the presidential suite and you bring your friends and you have some expensive whiskeys and you can call a Cajiso Rabada or a Quentin de Kock for a selfie with your family. It suddenly looks very attractive and, mm. you know, you forget what it is that you're supposed to be doing. And, uh, you know, you get captured. And, and unfortunately, there's been too many of those um, weak characters that have, have, have been allowed to, to get into the game. And, and, and this is why we, where we are now. Lungani Zama will be keeping a close eye on South Africa and, and hoping that things do start to look a little bit brighter over the coming months. Thanks for joining us on The Final Word. Cheers, Jeff. Anytime, mate. Hi, I'm Natalie Jimonis, and you're listening to The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. Sachin. It's your birthday. Happy birthday. Sachin. Sachin. It's your birthday. Happy birthday. Sachin. Take it away, Jeff. Happy birthday, Sachin! The best part of our week when this comes around because, the, as they call him, the little master, le petit maître, uh, he loves wishing happy birthday to people. He is a very good cricketer who's maybe not as interesting in other respects of his life and he loves a birthday and he loves letting you know when it's your birthday as long as you are a f former Indian cricketer, a current Indian cricketer or 
otherwise particularly famous in your field. So they're all cricketers, actually, since we last did this show. It's only been cricketers getting a gong. Umesh Yadav, who we mentioned, he's in the test squad to tour Australia and got an all the best for the year to come from Sachin. Riddiman Saha got one as well. He's in the test squad too as a mm. backup keeper. Hope you have a great year ahead, said Sachin, which he will because he's in the test squad. Well, I like what he's done there. All the best for the year to come with you, Mesh, and mm. hope you have a great year ahead. Just to flip on that on that formulation of words. I mean, mm. we all know what it's like when, I mean, if you do something nice on the internet and people are congratulating you for it, you can't just go, oh, thanks, mate, or cheer. You've got to sort of change up your yeah. gratitude, and, that, and that's what Sachin's doing here. He, he's not going copy-paste. He doesn't want Amishiato to think, oh, I just got the same message as Ritam and Saha got. Exactly. He's put some thought into it. He's the year ahead or the year to come. I mean, there's How do you do it with your books? Concepts. When you're signing books, do you have a... I, I notice that some authors uh, mm. basically write the same sentence to everyone that, that comes by or a variation on it. Or do you try and tailor your signing of books to the person in question? I do try to tailor it and it does take more effort and more time, but that's one of the advantages of not selling as many books or not having to sign as many books as say, I mean, if you were Dan Brown trying to, you, you'd probably, I mean, one, you're not a very good writer, so it would be hard to come up with something to write in the front. And two, you'd just have to do so many. But you know, I've, I've probably only had to sign like a few hundred maybe overall. So usually I try to get some sense of who the person is and maybe we have a little chat and, and that kind of thing. So th this is the time. I mean, Sachin's got time. He knows when these birthdays are coming up. I wonder if he writes the greetings in advance. I wonder if he puts them in his spreadsheet mm. where he's like, this year I'm going to give Ritam and Saha a great year ahead because last year I gave him the year to come. So I'm just going to flip that and make sure there's no repetition. Because some, look, some get the more conventional and some get, some get something special. So Verenda Saywag got one. Verenda Saywag's message said, to the one who dealt in fours and sixes, he turns 42, which adds up to six. Ah, see, that's special. That's not just a year to come tweet. He actually said that? Yeah. You're not taking the piss there. That, no, no. that is a direct quote. I've, I'm directly everything I'm saying here is directly taken from Sachin's feed. So he loves a bit of numerology, does Sachin and and Verenda Saywag's The one age. that dealt in fours uh, and sixes turns forty two, which adds up to six. For fuck's sake, Sachin. yeah. So forty two. So four and two. Adds oh, I don't up know. I I, 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 yeah. I understand the gag. That's not beyond me. It's okay. just that. Oh, committing so, but that's text. a special one. That's that's to forty that's million Twitter followers. More. Yeah, that's got a bit more personal touch to it, I think. Whereas Anil Kumble gets wishing you the very best for all your future endeavours, which sounds like Sachin has just fired Anil Kumble. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, like, that's what you put in the press release after you just, after the board has resigned. That's what Cricket South Africa put in when they said, we thank the board for their selfless dedication to the game of cricket. Um, the great game of cricket including all of the corruption investigations which led to them to all have to resign. Mm, interesting. So Anil Kumble got that one. Shadal Thakur got a gig. He's the lowest profile cricketer in this batch. You know, bowler, played a few games for India, but not really at the level of the others. His variation, wishing you a successful year ahead. Not a great year as Ritam and Saha got, but a successful year. So that's Shadal. The thing I like about Shadal Thakur is... Twofold. One, his Twitter handle is I'm Shard, which if you come from 
you know, as Adam does from the eastern suburbs of Melbourne, you have a different interpretation of shard and what that means. I'm, I'm reading that as um, I'm Sahad. <laughs> <laughs> Get the Zolio <laughs> shuttle. Yeah. Uh, make sure you're never out of range. <laughs> Drop I'm a line so to Dick Spooner. Um, no, I'm shut because ever since Virat Kohli signed up for his Twitter handle as I'm V Kohli in in a, a very badly um, capitalised sort of way, a lot of the Indian cricketers have gone for I'm blah blah. So I'm shard. Is just like I'm ready to you know, put that in your pipe and smoke it. The other thing that I like is that on his Twitter bio, Shardul Thakur has for commercial inquiries, he has an address you can write to, which is Shardul Thakur Marketing at gmail.com. <laughs> so, like, I know we still use a Gmail address for the final word, but I think we're at a slightly different level of operation than, than a, an Indian international cricketer in any case. Veda Krishnamurti got one, the only women's cricketer. And I liked that Sachin's message to her was, looking forward to see you play in the Women's T20 Challenge starting soon. So it's both a birthday message and a promotional tweet. <laughs> and it's also like probably the only thing he could think of where he's like, oh, she's a lady who plays cricket. What do I know about her? She'll probably be playing in the Women's Cricket Competition. So good. Veda. It's a great name too, isn't it? Uh, Veda Krishnamurti just comes, comes off the tongue. It's satisfying. Mm. Lord Vader. And Gautam Gambier was the last who got a gig from Sachin. He got, have a blessed year, stay healthy, mm. which maybe implies that he thinks that Gautam Gambier has been getting a bit fat, <laughs> you know, like stay on the treadmill, you absolute porky hamster. Stay um, off the shard. Yeah, stay off the shard. Well, maybe stay on it if you want to lose some weight. <laughs> but, uh, it's, it certainly helps you drop the kegs. Um, but I mentioned Virat Kohli, Adam, and you drew my, you drew my attention to this. Virat's been getting in on the act as well. He's been doing some birthday wishes on his Twitter too. So Umesh Yadav got one and Ritam and Saha got one. At the time of recording, Virat has wished Irfan Patan a happy birthday, but Sachin has not. Is Virat one-upping Sachin on the birthday greetings? Has he got a better spreadsheet with more Indian cricketers in it? I mean, is there trouble in paradise? Will Sachin have to see this and respond? Yeah, when I saw this, Jeff, earlier on, I, I did wonder what this might be all about. I mean, as, as we both know, when, when you're talking about Indian cricket on Twitter, inevitably there'll be a slew of replies about um, Sachin being very good at the sport. Uh, there's no way of avoiding uh, that, that genre of Twitter reply. And we often joke about the Wisden Almanac and the amount of complaints they get each year when Sachin isn't perpetually one of the Wisden Five cricketers of the year and, and so on. But maybe Coley has picked up on just the traction that Sachin is getting from the tweets and knowing that in addition to tens of thousands of runs he's going to have to also overtake him on twitter as well and this might help him do so mm. yeah tens of thousands of tweets and you know if he wants say his relationship with kyron pollard to be strong into the future he needs to make sure <laughs> that he gets gets him a birthday wish every year nobody has the market cornered in birthday tweets like sachin rt so uh, that's it that's happy birthday sachin for this week and uh, we wish to you as many good wishes as Sachin has wished to those listening in this week. I think that's about it, Adam. Feels about right to me. We've covered a lot of terrain yeah. today. We, we've been everywhere from the Big Bash to the upcoming India series to Jeff Boycott being a dickhead to the dilemma that South African cricket now finds itself in to Sachin Tendulkar and Virat Kohli's Twitter accounts to Zolio dates and getting on the shard and well it's 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 been eventful jeff 
<laughs> it's been it's been um, it's been a moment in time well spent with you as it ever is. Uh, it's the final word. We'll be back on the weekend for story time where we go through cricket history via Nerd Pledge and we'll be back with our regular weekly show Tuesday or Wednesday next week depending on when we decide to record it. We like to keep you guessing. The final word is produced by Bad Producer Productions. They're a podcast network. They have lots of other shows. You can check them out. It is edited week in, week out by David Collins. And it is listened to by you. Thank you for that. Thank you to everybody who supports the show on Patreon. If you want to play Nerd Pledge, that's where you go, patreon.com slash the final word, which helps us keep going. And if you just want to listen to the show, please do that and please continue to do it. And please tell other people who might want to do it as well. You can leave ratings or reviews that help or you can just do it the old-fashioned way with your mouth and it, the way that it makes sounds that other people can interpret, or your hands and the way that they can create shapes on a surface <laughs> that conveys a message to others, or any other form of communication that you choose to employ. Uh, aside from that, we choose to employ this one. This is the final word, and it will be again. Till next time. Bye. I had to go about-